Good evening and welcome to Spirit of Grace Church. I'm glad that you're able to make it with us on this Wednesday evening online. We're so thankful that you're here to join us. We're going to be reading tonight from Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16 and want to read just a couple of verses there. Excuse me, starting in verse number uh, 21. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. Again, we're glad that you're able to be with us tonight. We hope that something that would be said today would, would uh, challenge you, stretch you, and make you more into what he wants you to be. All right, verse number 21 says, From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. And uh, I'm thankful for the opportunity to find my life in him. And uh, I, I think we need to look at a couple of observations um, about this passage of Scripture before we really dig in. This is a passage that... Um, leads up to this conversation with Jesus, the Pharisees had come to Jesus and demanded, believe it or not, for Jesus to show uh, a sign from heaven. Now, keep in mind that Jesus had already been performing miracles, actively healing the sick, casting out demons, uh, even raising the dead. In fact, this, uh, if you read in the, in the chronology of this uh, passage, it follows the great miracle of the feeding of several thousands in Matthew 15, 29 to 39. And so why weren't these miracles enough? Why wasn't it enough that the Pharisees and Sadducees, and indeed really all the religious leaders uh, of that day, why wasn't it enough to prove that Jesus was indeed the Messiah that they had been waiting for? And to understand the answer to this question, uh, we need to understand the mindset of these people in that day and age um, that were making this demand. You see, to them, the Messiah would come and be the liberated of their people from the oppression from Rome. Uh, in that time, Palestine was oppressed and a uh, subjugate of a military rule of the Romans. And to the Romans, Palestine was a hot spot, um, one of those areas of the great Roman Empire that still needed to have a thumb kept on top of it in order to control it. And so in the eyes of many religious leaders among the Jews, their interpretation of the prophecies about the Messiah, that he would be a great king, that he would be a great deliverer, that he would be a great ruler, and who would come with power and glory and even force to return Jerusalem and Israel to its former splendor. But uh, here was this Jesus who seemed to have power, and yet he walked away from confrontation. He did not try to raise up an army. In fact, he didn't seem to have anything to say about the Roman Empire much at all. And there just didn't seem to be this aura of kingship about Jesus at the time. Yet he was 
claimed to be the Messiah. So show us a sign is the way the Pharisees and Sadducees cry out to say, uh, we got to see something more. And the sign, I, I don't know what sign they were looking for him other than to maybe take over. But uh, my question to you is, what sign are you looking for? You see, Jesus' reply rebuked the Pharisees' perception of who the Messiah was. They were right. The Messiah is, and Jesus is, the great King of Kings. He is the Almighty, that which was and is and is to come. He's a great ruler. He's a great deliverer. But they missed the part of how he is also classified in Scripture as a servant, as the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world, as the Savior. Jesus said that the only sign that would be given would be the sign of Jonah. Now, Jonah, if you don't know, is an Old Testament, and most people know the story of Jonah, uh, a prophet that spent three days and three nights in the belly of a fish uh, before he was returned, quote-unquote, into a sense to the land of living on dry shore. And so after, that's the only sign that Jesus said was going to happen, and he likened it, obviously, to the time that he would spend in the tomb and be raised again. But after leaving this crowd, Jesus warned his disciples um, to be on their guard against the things of the Pharisees and the Sadducees because he needed to guard themselves. they needed to guard themselves against the teaching, their understanding of who Jesus was and to whom the Messiah would be. In fact, uh, to emphasize the point, Jesus has a conversation with his disciples and he asked them, who do you men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And the disciples respond, you know, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, the other prophets. But Simon Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus made it clear that this was something that Peter did not see uh, on his own. He did not figure it out, but that God had revealed it to him. And it was through this insight that the disciples were really able to grasp who this person is that they were following and understand who Jesus really was. But it still seems that they weren't able to quite grasp how he was going to do it and what he really came to do. And that's where we come to our text today, um, where Jesus is sharing with them that he's going to have to go to Jerusalem and suffer. And it's at this crucial moment when Jesus first disclosed really the sign of Jonah that his mission, mission included uh, death on a Russian cross and then on the third day, he'd be raised to life again. Jesus' disciples learned that there are two paths to follow in that regard. You have one of rebellion and one of obedience. You can choose which path you want to choose. The Lord left it up to you and I to decide which direction, which roadway, really, that we wanted to walk. One of rebellion or one of disobedience or one of obedience. And we have to choose. And really, the path of rebellion, quite frankly, in Scripture is our own path. When we choose our own way, we're choosing the path of rebellion. And when we choose Jesus' way or Jesus' plan, we are choosing the path of obedience. It, the situation is really twofold. We want Jesus, first of all, to follow our plans. That's that's how many have ever prayed for that? Lord, just help me to get that million-dollar car or that million-dollar home or whatever it is. You know, uh, We want him to follow us and help us out. Um, but we have a decision to make, and we're not any different than Simon Peter and the rest of the apostles. They were shocked at what Jesus was saying. They were horrified at the thought of what Jesus had just told them, that he was going to have to uh, pay the price. And uh, they couldn't think or they couldn't grasp or wrap their arms or minds around the concept 
that the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, would be suffering and dying. This plan was far beyond anything that they could conceive, uh, that the promise of the resurrection on the third day didn't even register in their ears or in their minds. And so in the text we read that Peter takes Jesus aside. You know, just picture that for a moment. Here's Simon Peter, who had just a few short time ago revealed stately that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and then he hears Jesus making these statements, and he's like, wait a minute here. And so he quickly glances around at all the other disciples and realizes that their expression matches his feelings. And he decides to himself, well, somebody's got to do it. Somebody's got to talk to him. After all, Jesus did say he would build his church upon the rock. And wait, wait, well, wait a minute. Um, he can't die or there won't be any other church. And so there's a battle going on in Peter's mind, but he quickly grabs Jesus' uh, coat and pulls him aside and motions to Jesus come apart. And he says, never, Lord, are you crazy? Uh, there, there's an astonishing oxymoron, I guess is the word here. Um, in the same breath that Peter acknowledges Jesus as Lord, he then tries to tell Jesus how to be Lord and, uh, and, and what to do. And how often do we do that? Lord, you are the great God Almighty. Now, can you fix this? Uh, would you do it this way? Would you manifest yourself this way? Uh, Peter says to Jesus, there's never, nothing can happen this way. You can't, it must not be, will not permit it. You see, G, uh, Simon Peter, excuse me, had a plan for Jesus that did not include suffering and atonement and death. Peter wanted to see Jesus follow his plan. But Jesus is the Lord of life. He's the maker and the sustainer of the universe. He will not bow himself or bend himself to our will or the will that we would he would follow our plans he wants us or he insists that we follow him and so the second aspect of this situation is that Jesus is asking us is calling us and really demanding us but doesn't make us we have the opportunity to choose to follow him Jesus turned and says get behind me satan you're a stumbling block to me you don't have in mind the things of god but the things of men I believe that Jesus turned so that his his back faced Peter to emphasize his rebuke. In addressing Simon Peter, his one of his closest followers as Satan, Jesus was addressing the plan that was put forward by Peter that Satan had already attempted Jesus. If you read Luke chapter 4 while he was in Gethsemane, uh, and then later on in Gethsemane, in chapter 4 as well, but in later in Gethsemane, that he was, if he just does something, then everything would be uh, made and, and Jesus said in Gethsemane, "Not my will, but thine." If if this cup could pass from me, let it pass, but not my will, but thy will be done. Uh, the temptation is the cross is not necessary, suffering is not necessary. Jesus addressed the root of Peter's plan when he said, "You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men." I, I want to make a simple statement tonight: when our plans come from our minds they will never be God's plans. I'll say that again. When our plans come from our minds, they will never be God's plans. But on the flip side of the coin is when God's plans are revealed to our minds, we need to let them become our plans. Okay, that, that, that's the two different sides of the coin of this passage. If our plans are the plans that we think are right, but they're not God's plans, we're going to be in the wrong. 
But if we'll let God's plans ruminate in our spirit and we make them our plans, then Jesus has the opportunity to live with us and through us. Jesus wanted his disciples to submit to his will and to his plan. In fact, he calls us and the disciples of that time, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And that 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 call of denial, taking up the cross and following him, rings and echoes through the ages and right down to 2021 as he's calling us today. Jesus wanted the disciples to submit to him. You see, discipleship is not a life of ease or a life of glory. It is a life that requires the forsaking of our own will. Really, discipleship is simply that, not my will, but thy will. And Jesus' admonition to take up the cross means that disciples must deny themselves daily and their ambitions and their goals and their dreams. In the Roman Empire, I find it interesting that a condemned criminal was forced to carry his own cross. And this showed that he was under the control and or the submissive to the rule that had, that he had been opposing or she had been opposing. And Jesus eventually submitted to that Roman authority and permitted them to crucify him because he was submitted to an authority that was even greater than the Roman authority. And uh, Jesus chose to carry his cross for us that we might have the choice whether or not to carry ours. And so Jesus not only wanted his disciples to submit to him, but he wants us to, uh, the, the disciples, but he wants us to submit as well. And so back in verse 24, I want you to see this clause. Whoever wants to save his life, the key word in this clause is wants to save. Whoever wants to save, and if you analyze these three words and you compare them to the context, we find that Jesus was calling the disciples to submit themselves to their wills to his own, and in so doing, you would save your life. And, and so when you break this down, the words want to is philo in the Greek, and it means a firm resolve or a mindset, a driving purpose. It expresses resolve or resolute willingness. And the word save is sozai, and it means preserving authority. It can mean saving someone from death, rescuing someone from danger, restoring of good health, or even prospering or getting on well. And the way to tell what it is mean is by the context of the of the passage. And so I believe in this context, savings one's life probably means reserving the right to exercise authority over our own lives rather than submitting that authority to Jesus. And so the issue is, who's going to run your life? Uh, you or Jesus? That's a huge, huge question. Who is going to be the decision maker in your life? Is it going to be you or is it going to be Jesus? You have to decide. I have to decide for myself. Will we follow the plan that Jesus has for us or will we follow our own? In John chapter 5, verse 40, Jesus says, you refuse to come to me to have life. There's a choice that you and I have to make. So the path Jesus and his followers would travel requires first and foremost a submission to the will of Jesus to follow his plans and not our own. That's what it means to lose your life. You lose your plans. You lose your agenda. You lose your ambitions or your desire. You voluntarily forfeit the authority over your life to Jesus Christ. And in losing your life, you're going to find a greater life. 
because when you give up your life for his life, his life is obviously going to be much greater. Verse 25 kind of seems confusing at first, but if you look at it outside of everything else, if Jesus wants us to lose our life for him, then why would he want us to find it again? And that's really not what it's talking about. We would better understand it if it was it put maybe a little bit different, and John writes it a little bit different. In John 12, 25, he says, The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So let's just set this passage aside for a second and ask this question. What does it mean to live a Christian life? Some would say that Christian life is living for God. That's nice, and and it's true. Some would say it's walking in the Spirit. Again, it's true. But I want to challenge you to go a little bit deeper and read with me in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. I'm reading from the NIV right now. It says this, Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now we hear the first two verses preached, quoted, expressed over and over, if you will. Set your minds uh, equals to what we read earlier for you do not have in mind or or where what are you thinking about? Where is everything? But this verse brings everything into focus. But where you really understand what it means to set your minds on the things of God and not the things of man is is conceptualized, is brought into focus in verses 3 and 4, you for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ, when Christ who is your life, those words jump off the page at me, when Christ who is your life, this is the key to being a follower of the Lord. This is what it means to deny yourself, take up your cross, follow him, choose to submit to him when you, when Christ, who is your life. Why did Jesus say, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it? Uh, I'll tell you why. Jesus wants us to surrender our lives so he can be our life. Not so we just have another plan. We like to use the word, the plan of God or the Jesus plan or his will And all that's well, but Jesus wants to go even beyond just giving you another plan. He's wanting to be your life. So I believe it's true. I believe that when we surrender to him, the fork in the road, if you will, the decision that we need to make between rebellion and obedience is really twofold. Do I want to walk my own path, figure out my own life, or do I want Christ living through me? That path becomes my life. Okay, and uh, it's not just another atlas map. It's not just another route. You know, you can GPS an address on your phone today, and you can get multiple, the quickest, the easiest, etc., way to get somewhere. Well, in this passage, this is our GPS, and we have one of two choices. It does not any other. You do your thing, or you do his thing, and uh, 
And, and so I believe that it's true that Jesus died for us, but it's also important to note that when you and I believe in him and when you and I surrender our lives to him and we have forgiveness for our sins, that we died with him and he not only just added something to us, but the Bible says he became our life. When Christ, who is your life, your life, when you are tied together with him, when you are in his presence, it is all about Jesus living through us, not just in us, not just around us, but through us. There are so many Christians that struggle in their walk and they face their ups and downs and they feel so drained all the time because they're still trying to live their lives for God instead of letting Jesus live his life through them. I want to say that again, we get so down and drained and worn out and ups and downs because we're trying to live our lives for God instead of letting Jesus live through us. To those who insist on running their own lives uh, is going to miss the best thing that God has for us because you can't run your own life. I can't run my own life. We are finite creatures who are only dimly aware of what's really going on around us, and some more dimly than others, I suppose. But we struggle to understand what has happened in the past. We don't have a clue what's coming to us even tonight or tomorrow. Doesn't it make sense to give over control of our lives to our Maker who loves us and works all things together for our good? You see, trying to live for God instead of letting God live his life through us or rejecting the sovereign Lord's plan for our life and doing it our way is like the guy who habitually oversleeps every morning. One day he woke very late, bolted out of bed, dashed cold water on his face, ran a razor over it, uh, made a hasty pass with his comb through his hair, gulped down a glass of milk, raced to catch the bus. He barely gets on the bus. Just before it's ready to pull away, he drops a coin in the in the meter on the bus, and he runs down the aisle and finds a seat, and he sits down, and he takes a big sigh and breathlessly blurts out, by the way, where's this bus going? That's what it's like when you're trying to do it on your own. Never enough time, never actually knowing where you're going, what bus you're on for that day. But those who insist on running those your own life are like the accused that has himself as a lawyer. Most people would call them a fool. Isn't it better to let the all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving God run your life? Isn't it better just to hop on the bus and say, God, wherever you want to take me, take me? You, you, you drive and I'll ride. Don't you think that the one who designed you and made you and called you can do a better job of leading you than you can? Uh, those who let Jesus run their lives, the Bible promises us a rich, a rewarding, a joyful life. And so the phrase, loses his life for me, means that we forfeit the control of our lives. We surrender our lives. And the reason we do so is for Jesus Christ. And when we do so, Jesus then is free to become our life and we find true life. Those who have served in combat know that in a life or death situation, the man who risks his life in battle has the best chance of saving it. And the one who flees is most likely to lose it. There was two people, uh, their names are Alvin Vader Grind and Edith Bahima. They stated this in, in, in a book that they wrote. When World War II era bombers were hit by enemy fire, 
A few extra pounds could mean the difference between life and death. Discarding extra weight wasn't so hard if it meant impersonal items like guns and seats and so on, but if things got so crucial, excuse me, got so crucial that staying aloft was questionable, the order would come to throw our cameras, our souvenirs, our parachutes. That's when the grumbling would begin. And it's the same in the Christian life. It's easy to throw off habits and customs and values that don't touch us deeply, that don't affect us deeply. It's, it becomes easy. But when it comes to deeply entrenched behaviors and intensely personal things, we begin to grumble. And when things on which we let our eyes linger, words that we use when we're hurt or angry, our attitude toward money, how we treat others, thoughts that our minds entertain, our feelings about others, greatly determine whether we're going to lose our life for him. Then it's what we're tied to. It makes it harder. See, if I am not tied in double knots to the things of this world, it's easier for me to, to, to loosen the laces, if you will, and let God take control. So tonight, I want you to think about the domains of your life. Think about your core values, the things that you treasure, your closest relationships, the things you read, the things you listen to, the things you watch, how you use your time. Is there a place in all of the agendas of your life where you echo Peter's words, no, Lord, not this time, not this way. Uh, I, I would challenge you that whatever the Spirit of God is telling you at this moment is what you need to work on. You need to surrender your life to Jesus. I believe that we're living in a day and an age where people that are not willing to surrender to him are going to be facing grave consequences. Because I believe time is wrapping up. I believe that signs of the return of the Lord are all over the place. Is he coming today? He might. Is it going to be another thousand years? It might be. I have no idea. Uh, no man knows the day nor the hour. But this one thing I do know is whether he comes tonight or he comes five generations from now, I've got to live my life like he's coming in the next 10 minutes. I need to be so sold out to him. I need to be so in tune with him because I believe that God is trying to embrace us. Now, I'm going to use an analogy to close tonight that some of you might even laugh at because I don't possess really much rhythm uh, when it comes to music. Uh, I can count a beat. I know how to count beats and all that, but I don't feel it. I, uh, when we would sing in the Christmas and my wife would give me a solo and I'd be counting out the introduction until I knew the time came for me to sing. But she was like, just feel the music. I don't feel the music. I don't feel the rhythm. I count it. That's just me, okay? And so because of that, I don't have really any rhythm. So I've never been a dancer. I've never danced really in my life. But I've watched people dance. And whenever two people are dancing together, there always has to be one that's leading and one that's following in order for it to be an effective and good dance. And uh, I believe that Jesus is asking us, he's the man that's walked across the gymnasium at the teenage dance, and he's asking us, would you like to dance? But if you're going to dance with me, you need to deny yourself, take up your cross, and then start to dance and let me lead. Let me lead to the rhythm of the music. Let me lead the rhythm of the spirit that's around us. 
let me be the one that leads you into where this dramatic and powerful and authoritative dance can be found. You see, I believe that there are people watching. There's nothing like you, you, you see it uh, in movies or whatever, and, and there's a huge crowd on the dance floor, and then two people start to dance, and they start to make some moves that begin to uh, draw the attention of others, and before too long, you've got the one person or the one couple that's dancing and everybody else is watching. There's a lot of people watching you. There's a lot of people watching me, and they're watching to see who we're dancing with. My question to you tonight, my challenge to you, have you accepted the call of Jesus to begin to dance with him? Have you accepted the call to let him lead your life? If you haven't, you're missing out on the most fun, adventurous, dramatic dance of your life. If you just stay in the corner and refuse to, to follow, dancing on your own isn't very fun. But if you'll dance with Jesus, there's no telling who's going to be watching and what kind of a crowd you're going to draw. And when they begin to see you, they're going to be seeing this beautiful mosaic of expression, this beautiful rhythmic dance that Jesus has, and your life will have significance your life will have meaning, not because, and the reason why it will have significance and meaning is because you are letting him live through you. Praise God. Would you dance with him tonight? Would you let him lead? Praise God. If you would, would you just close your eyes just for a moment and pray with me? Jesus, Lord, I surrender my all to you once again. Lord, all of my dreams, all of my ambitions, all of my goals, all of my aspirations, I place them into your hands. I'm asking you to live through me. Lord, those that are listening and watching this tonight, God, I'm asking you to draw them closer to you. Let them sense you like never before. We'll be careful to give you praise and glory and honor. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray. Amen, amen, amen. Thank you for a wonderful service last Sunday to all of our Spirit of Grace folks. Looking forward to, should the Lord tarry another great weekend. Come expecting the move of the Lord. Let's see what will happen. Until then, let's dance like we've never danced before. <laughs>